This is the Serial and Midnight Podcast, Episode 3. Hello and welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland and I am your host for this and every episode of this podcast. Thanks to everyone who has downloaded, who has subscribed to this podcast. It's always tricky when a new podcast enters the scene and the feedback for the first two episodes of this show has been even better than I expected. I hoped that the YouTube audience would connect with the podcast, but so far, uh, my my highest expectations have been passed. You guys have really uh, you've 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 connected with the show. Continue, please continue to subscribe, to leave reviews, to engage. If you're watching this on YouTube, the old thumbs up is a nice. It's a nice thing to do. And subscribe, leave a comment so that uh, I know you're watching. Those help the show. Um, this is the official podcast of SerialAndMidnight.com. There's always new things happening at SerialAndMidnight.com. This week alone, I'm running a three-part interview with Jan Sternod, the man who, you guys know the Sword of the Atom comic book miniseries? That's Jan Sternod. He wrote Star Wars During the Dark Times uh, for Dark Horse before the Disney purchase of, uh, of Star Wars as a franchise. Some of the earliest... Uh, Jedi stories from the episode two era come from Jan Sternod and he worked at Disney animation for years. The shows that I love so much that I grew up with, uh, Darkwing Duck, I'm not going to, I'll forget some of them if I start naming them. He worked on many, many of the shows that we love from the nineties and beyond. And he was a real treat. It's so funny because in the interview, basically I ask one question and then I got like three pages of a, of a reply back. And so it's a three-part interview, and it's essentially just me asking three different questions, and then he just runs with it, and it's fantastic. So that is a, a text interview, and it is only at SerialAtMidnight.com. Uh, I'll put, uh, I was going to say I'll put links in the description of this video. It's SerialAtMidnight.com. That's all you need to know. For this episode, for the third installment of this podcast, we're talking to somebody truly special. Uh, I sat down with Francisco Simeone, the... Former, he was with Arrow Video for 12 years. He was the director of catalog distribution for the better part of six years, and then another almost six years as the director of content. He left the company a little while ago to start his own label, Radiance Films. So, this is a really interesting and unique opportunity because we're talking to someone who is at the very beginning. He's not at the very beginning of the process, but he's about to launch Radiance Films. He's pretty much, you can pre-order the movies now. He's even got a package where you can order like the first three years worth of titles from Radiance. Uh, but we're getting a, a glimpse through this conversation into the beginning of this journey. You know, someone's launching a new label in this marketplace. So you know I asked all the questions. I asked about 4K. I asked about what kind of movies, you know, what kind of movies are you going to release? What are you focusing on a specific genre? Uh, we got, you know, you know, I'm very interested in the business aspect of these things. So we talked a lot about the infrastructure and what's required. I talked about the extras, like producing new special features. Uh, I talked about uh, some of the movies that I think need more of a spotlight than they're getting and hopefully I left no stone unturned here it was a really uh he was really open and honest with his answers so you know what let's roll right into it without further ado Francesco Simeone from Radiance Films 
Um, it's great to, to talk to you. You know, I've been an admirer for a long time and I've certainly, uh, I mean, the, the stuff that was, you were at Arrow 12 years, right? I think it was 12 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now a huge transition. So how, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it was a long time at Arrow. I mean, I think that's a long time for any job. It's the longest that I've been in any job. Um, and um, yeah, and now it's it's a bit surreal, you know, kind of doing a lot of the stuff that I used to do at Arrow. Uh, certainly when I started out, I mean, when I started at Arrow, it was, you know, just kind of me, the owner of the company, his aunt, and like a part-time accountant. So I just kind of came in and I was like, right, okay. So I've got this cult label that's kind of the makings of something. And then I just had to basically build upon that because when it started, it was um it was it was an idea that hadn't really fully taken shape. It was Masters of Jallo was on one release, and then another one was just like um plain. And then another one had a tagline and it was Lucho Fulci films and Caligula and um, what else had come out at that point? Not a lot. When I started, it was it'd been going about a year, but only had a few releases out. So I came in and I was kind of like, OK, well, don't just be a horror label because you're going to be scraping the barrel in a few years time when you run out of good movies, because you, at that time, you know, boutiques didn't get, you know, big studio hot property titles. So, um, you know, I saw the company had Battle Royale come in. I was like, this is absolutely what the label should be. It should be about, you know, all encompassing cult films and genre movies and, you know, black exploitation and thrillers and, you know, Brian De Palma movies. That was one of my first big things was like, right, let's get all the De Palma movies. So that's kind of what I did. And in a funny sort of way, I'm, I'm back there again with those kind of ideas of like, what, what can I do now? Where do I? Where do I go and what do I shine a light on? So that's, it's really interesting and I'm, it's fun. You know, it's it's nice to kind of go digging away in things and um, find treasure basically. Well, I want to talk to you about Radiance. I want to talk to you about th th what the need is in the market, like finding your niche with a new label. But to do that, I also want you to kind of tell me what your perception is you've been there for basically the birth and the heyday of what we now call the boutique market and you know we saw it kind of leave retail and become this giant um on a different level and you're one of the major players in that could you talk to me just a little bit about i don't know you know finding that model exploring it how it's grown is it still a growing model is it changing into something else you know, the collector aspect of so much of what we're talking about. I'd really love your opinion on just how the market's changed over the last 10 to 12 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it has changed so much over that time. I mean, when I started, um, Blu-ray just taken off. It was 2010. In going a few years, probably the first Blu-rays, 2006, 2007. Yeah. But it that time it was a blu-ray a year from every other label if they even got in it arrow had done one or two maybe um so blu-ray wasn't really a big thing you know everyone was still releasing dvds dvds would sell really well 
um, which is a mad thought now. Um, and um, and you know you could you could release a, an independent movie and and do really well with it. You know this is a time where labels like Arrow um, and the labels that were popular at that time didn't really deal with studios in anything like the way they do now. The idea back then that a, uh, an independent label would do a major Hollywood top top title you know there's mm -hmm. like charts that we have in the uk and the us it's like if you're in the top 200 sellers you know if you asked a big studio back then they would have just laughed at you and thought you're absolutely crazy so that really is the dynamic shift that studios then got to a point where they said yeah okay fine we'll let you have this and we'll just take a percentage because we can't be you know it's not can't be bothered it's you know, the, the economics don't work for us anymore. And that's what happened with studios. Um, but in a really interesting way, that's kind of going back again now. You know, we're seeing Paramount putting out, putting out more um, catalogue titles and doing their own special editions. You know, every now and again, you'll see, you know, a big title coming out from a studio, um, which is done in the same way the boutiques that like... Um, it was uh, an award show in the UK the other day and Universal won big for their release of Inglorious Bastards. You know, that was a release that looked a bit like a boutique label release. Um, so it's really interesting that, that we've got this landscape now where everyone's trying to do this. They're all kind of looking at it and seeing, OK, well, if you print stuff off and you put it in the box and you call it a collector's edition, people will buy it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what's happening, I think. Some people are okay with that. Maybe other people are just a bit like, you know, you can't just put stuff in and expect me to pay a lot of money for it. Yeah. I think there is a really discerning customer out there that will sort of look at it and go, yeah, I'll wait for a sale on that. And, you know, that's it. They see the difference between the boutiques and the amount of work and care, I think, that goes into the releases. And I think that ultimately is the difference. But in terms of the market as a whole, I think, we're just in the same business as vinyl or other niche businesses. Um, you know, I think this, you know, limited edition model is, is spreading across all industries now, you know, where you've got limited edition clothes and limited edition everything now. And I think that is just a reaction to the market in terms of the way things are sold, the way they're stored. Um, and I just think that's a reality we're in now. Do you think limited editions are a good way to, I, you know, I hear so much of the criticism. I see, I hear everything, right? I get everybody coming at me from all sides, giving me their opinions about things. And some of them love the limited editions. There's value built in, you know, there's you know, like, you know, um, equity built into a, a purchase that's a limited edition. But then there's the same, at the same time, there are people who are kind of suspicious of it. And they're like, well, I want that booklet or I want that slip cover or whatever it is. Um, it's an interesting divide i guess in the collecting community um it, it, limited editions are kind of a necessary evil right or i don't know i don't want to put words in your mouth and even say that they're evil but those tactics it's kind of necessary at this point is it not yeah i mean it's necessary uh in that it's just not economical to do it any other way i mean unless you're a big company and you can afford to be sat on lots of stock that you might not sell yeah. or that you will just have to leave until people do buy it. 
Um, and that's that's a big risk for small companies. Um, and the thing is, is that market pressures do put labels in such a place that if they spend a lot of money manufacturing a box, a poster, a booklet, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got studios saying, hey, buy this 4K release. It's $14.99. And, the, stu and the, the independent labels there going, oh, my God, I spent all this money. And now I've got my buyers going, hey, I'm going to get this 4K. And yours is double that price and it's not 4K or it doesn't have this or it doesn't have that. So then the label says, well, I've got to meet market demand by putting my stuff on sale. But my margin is now so squeezed because I spent all that on expensive packaging, which in contrast, the studio is doing, you know, tens of thousands of units, maybe where they have a deal where their manufacturing cost is very, very cheap. But the labels is probably not very cheap. So that's the difference. So that's where the limited edition model comes in and, and saves the label that that squeeze allows them to survive. And, and that's basically what it's about. It, it's, I don't think any label was doing it to hoodwink people and to sort of, you know, sucker them into to paying more money for stuff. I mean, you know, as I said, maybe some of the studios just sort of, perhaps just because of the way they're set up, because they're big organizations, just to have an approach where it is just like, you know, just print this thing off. Yeah. And it doesn't always feel so carefully curated, I'd say, is, is my personal view on things. So that's the way I, I see it, really. It seems like there's a lot of, uh, I, I think some fans see it and some don't, but there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears in the Blu-ray market. And that leads us directly into the creation of Radiance Films. This is your baby, am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I never really saw myself as a curator or or, or anything like that really at Arrow. At Arrow, I was always just an employee kind of carrying out the wishes of band feedback, the team, um, you know, company aims. So I just kind of saw myself as a kind of conduit to all those things. Um, and I think I kind of, you know, was put in a position where I was, I was like going to start Radiance. And I thought, well, what do I do? It's all on me. I haven't got all of those things to say, well, you know, it's for them and it's for that. And it's because I need to, I really had to own it. And um, I had to sort of make my peace with calling myself a curator, essentially. Um, and that is, that is a bit weird um, because I think a, a big onus is placed on that in terms of um, how important it is. And, and for me, it, it's not like I, it's not like I think about it so deeply. I just, I'm just doing films I like, which, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that kind of weight of importance because I'm just doing what I like. So it doesn't feel, yeah. you know, that heavy, if you know what I mean. So um so I, ha I had to do that and, and, and kind of think about what that meant in terms of how I selected releases and and what the label looked like and what it did and all that kind of thing. So that's, that's been an interesting process. I mean, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about like imposter syndrome and stuff like that. And, you know, that's, it's so easy to, to have that in this job where, you know, I'm not an expert in anything. <laughs> I'm kind of like a jack of all trades, master of none. You know, the experts are the people that I work with. When, you know, I need the best encoding for a Blu-ray, I 
go to the best encoder when I need someone to do a commentary because they're the expert in the film. So I've always got all these people who are way better than me telling me stuff. So it's very easy to sort of be sat where I am and just sort of think, oh, you know, just do what I can. But, but that's that's what's exciting about it because you've been you have so much experience and you have so many connections and you are drawing from the best and the first you know the the entry titles the you know the the launch titles uh it's a diverse bunch of stuff so I, the, the the tagline when you go to radiancefilms.co.uk it says classic cult and art house films is that kind of the a broad description of kind of what you're going for here I just come back to sort of saying it's films that I like, really. I mean, you know, I, I'm not the kind of person when I started at Arrow, you know, I felt like such an outsider because I'd seen Argento, a couple of Argento films, never seen any Fulci films. And I, I actually was made to feel a bit like an outsider because I'd spent I was quite young. I was 26 when I started. I'd spent all that time until then kind of going through the classics, essentially, the canon, you know, the, the AFI list, the sight and sound list, this, this, the lat list, which can, you know, didn't have faulty films on, basically. Um, so I did kind of start uh, Arrow a bit green. And, um, you know, when I did that and started to see more things that I was aware of, but hadn't maybe gotten fully into, um, I basically sort of realized how much I do like cult films. And when I left Arrow, that was even more pronounced because I sort of left and I thought, well, what do I want to do? And and there was a bit of overlap, but I was sort of conscious not to not to sort of do too similar. So there are some things that maybe I won't do so much. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it was my kind of personality. I'm not a slasher fan really so don't expect any slashes from me but you know cult films definitely are a big thing art house films I'm very passionate about um I, I like a bit of everything really is, is the simplest answer and that's probably what's going to be in the label and the, the the reason for the diverse slate was that I wanted to go out and people to to look at it and go oh, okay so it's going to be a bit of everything basically I didn't want to go out with two titles and people look at those and go, oh, okay, so it's going to be all like this. And then, you know, a, um, you know, a crime film comes in and it's like, oh, okay, they're doing crime films too. And it's always something new and a, a surprise. I think people do kind of look at things and it's easy to make an assumption based on that. So I wanted to go out and go, yes, it's broad. Where did the name come from? Um, the name was so unbelievably hard to come up with um i uh, i had a big piece of paper and i wrote down uh like some sort of key like tenets of what i wanted the label to stand for and then i sort of drew a circle and lines off for other words for those words and then more words for those words and i <laughs> like a complete madman i'd written all these words down and i was like yeah none of them feel right and at the time i was reading this book on italian cinema and it's the history going right back to when it started and it was in um, all the different cities. So it's like every city had a, an industry unto itself. So I was reading about that and all those companies and I was like, oh, these are all cool names like Lux and Esmeralda uh, and stuff like that. And, and all of them had been taken. There was always a company for one of those names. 
but in describing it, it said the radiance of these companies. So I was like, oh, radiance, that's quite cool. Like radiance, light from the screen and stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, that sounds good. And it stuck. No. I love it. It's good. It says it's got it's, it conjures up, you know, what's what you said that it's it's not a specific thing either. It leaves you room to kind of explore and play around with different things. Yeah. Um, what can people expect from these releases? Uh, people who know Arrow stuff expect a certain package. They're expecting, you know, a certain amount of commentaries and features and things like that. Are, are you looking to load these up with a lot of bonuses? Yeah, I mean, my my rule of thumb really is explore all the things that are worth exploring and and leave it there. I mean, I think you see a lot of releases now where it's like you get predictable extras, let's say, you sort of get a commentary. I'm not I'm not a massive commentary fan. Um, and I think that's often because um, of time really not for the format it's just the time um if every release comes with a commentary i for myself i just wouldn't get to them so for my own view on that i'm being selective for the same reason because i kind of think not everyone can if i release you know however many titles they all have commentaries how many of them will be listened to mm -hmm. i think not all films really need commentaries um so i'm playing around with that as a format as well so on Red Sun, although that has a full commentary um, from the files we received, we cut it down because a lot of what goes into some commentaries, not all, but that one especially, can be best described as, you know, just talking about what's on screen and, and it's just a bit like you're sitting there waiting to get to the good bits. So we cut it down and we basically chaptered it and we've described it so you can go to the menu and you can be like oh okay so there's a thing on the director's favorite scene oh i'll just listen to that or there's a thing on the end or you can go back and listen to it all um so i thought that was really good because i think some people might just be like i just want to dip in and out mm -hmm. or i want to listen to the whole thing or i might do it in a few chunks so i like that as a as an option which i haven't really seen anyone do before yeah. So I want to do stuff like that, but um, more traditionally in terms of cast and crew interviews, where they're available uh, or can be, you know, organised. Not everybody necessarily wants to talk on camera. I think this is always this thing when specs go out and people are like, oh, shame they didn't get an interview with this person. Like we didn't ask. Right. Some people just don't want to talk about the film or just won't answer or, you know, Many other or places. if they do they want twenty five thousand dollars or something like yeah that. that that yeah that can happen as well um but um i often find that experts on the subject are are just as if not more illuminating about the film so i'm really keen on having experts from the country so we've been shooting a few interviews lately with italian authors and critics about some of the italian films we've got which has been great because you know you're literally getting the person who wrote the book on the subject who has the cultural knowledge of the film and and, and what was happening historically and, and and culturally so the interviews are really interesting but you know equally there's you know great people that I've worked with um over my years at Arrow who are doing like visual essays and and sometimes commentaries and and stuff like that and just plain interviews so 
it's a real nice mix i think i think it sort of ticks those kind of three distinct areas i think where you've got like specialist um cast and crew and then you know critics that we all love to to kind of hear from basically so that that's the mix that people can expect over pretty much all the releases you brought up visual essays and i want to get your thoughts on something because you're being very honest and open and I there's been a real rise of visual essays and I seem I, I feel like there's a decline of actual essays like printed material essays they're still around but I feel like we're watching a transition happen I like the written I like packaged materials where I can you know take it with me and read it like reading those 80 page books that I can read in bed do you have an opinion on the 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 changing of that or if there even is a change in there if it's just my my perception on that are we losing printed essays to visual essays I mean, I suppose it would depend on the label, really. I mean, I think there's still lots of good essays out there. Um, my own releases that we have so far, um, again, you know, it's, it's the same approach as I described earlier. If if it's there, we'll do it. Um, so I'm just, we just nearly finished the booklet on Big Time Gambling Boss, and that's got two essays. So that's 4,000 words. Um, that's maybe a 20 minute read, something like that. Um, so that covers off the film, uh, that covers off the, sorry, the director, and it covers off the cast in the booklet. And the disc covers off the genre and the film. So if you read everything, you should have no overlap. And um, there was not really much more to do. You know, we couldn't dream up another extra because we discussed everything. We couldn't put any more in the booklet because we literally, tried to find all we could in terms of like archival stuff, et cetera. So that, that's the approach. Whereas like um, um, the working class goes to heaven. We've got interviews with three of the cast and crew. We've got a piece from Alex Cox, um, giving an appreciation on the film. We've got a visual essay on um, Elio Petri and his politics, which is really fascinating, goes throughout his career. Um, we've got um, a documentary on the making of the film, um, which goes into the sort of the real life location, the factory they filmed in, all the people, the politics of the town and everything that was going all the background for that. Um, so you've got all of that, you've got quite a lot covered off. And then you've got the booklet, which deals with the film itself, um, from a specifically Italian viewpoint, Italian history and stuff that's not covered on the disc. And then you've got another essay about um, Petri and Volante's collaborations, which is really interesting. And then you've got uh, an interview with Petri, which doesn't overlap with the disc either. And then you've got two archival essays. So that, that book is massive, but it doesn't overlap the disc. So that's what I'm really careful to do with everything that's done on a release is that you you don't sort of look at it and go oh I just read that or I just heard that or yeah. you know so and that can be quite tough with a film like a woman kills that might happen because um there's nothing about that film no one knows anything about it so you know that that's the thing it, it's it's covering off everything that you can about the release whilst not well just boring people basically mm. but but doing right by it, like you say, like people want to have a booklet. I think people want to have a booklet and have a good, you know, leaf through and, you know, have a potentially, you know, an hour or more's entertainment, I suppose. Yeah. 
I want to learn about it, you know? And I think, the, I think we we're wired to process information differently. If we read something, it's, I don't know if it's like, it sticks with you better, but uh, I don't know. I'm, just, I'm glad to hear this. this is, you're saying all the right things to me. This is exciting to hear. So um, let's talk about some of the movies themselves. I don't, we don't necessarily have to go down the list. I do have the list here, but um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the movies that are coming in the first uh, you know, launch titles and things like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like I've talked about all of them so much. I sort of almost wish I'd announced more titles to have something new to talk about. But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because uh, with the slate, I was kind of able to to delve into different areas. So um, I think Working Class Goes to Heaven. I mean, for me, it's, you know, films of the 60s and 70s as a whole, I'm a big fan of. You know, I just think it was such an amazing era for filmmaking but working class goes to heaven is a really interesting one because um i mean it's got this great performance at the heart of it from john maria volante who's just one of the absolute greats um but also which i've definitely appreciated a lot more since working on the release um and it looking so good as well so i mean some people might see in the dvd but you know this really blows it out of the water i mean it's a lovely new restoration um we were able to do some extra color grading on the release to correct some previous issues because we were very fortunate to get access to um um a video master taken from a print um which we which we got and then compared and then realized some scenes had been sort of very flatly graded this is a bit of a problem you know from some countries where there aren't massive budgets that just kind of knock things out and it's all quite automated. So we were able to correct that. Looks really good now. But um, Working Class Goes to Heaven has this lineage to um, Italian comedies, basically, Commedia all'Italiana, which was um, something that sort of sprung up in the late 50s. I mean, I think Big Deal of Madonna Street is probably the first one where I think some of these films might have been a bit, um, what's the best way of putting this? I mean, maybe they sort of um, discounted a bit by people. It's like, oh, you know, just like silly entertainment. But the films themselves are all sort of quite political in their way. Um, they're really critical of social attitudes at the time or things that were happening. I mean, even the historical ones, which, there's a great one called The Great War, which is which was critical about that as well. Um, so there there is a lineage to that as well. But the, the films themselves were massively entertaining, often with great stars in like Mastroianni and stuff like that. Um, so the way that this this harks back to that genre is really interesting as well. That I think working class goes to heaven looked like quite a heavy political. Um, film but actually it's like quite a in a in a way sort of a bombastic you know farce almost in that you know his his character is this guy who's motivated by sex but he can't perform because he's drained by the work and so on mm -hmm. so all this stuff's going on that just gives the film a, a great layer to to appreciate i think as you're talking about this, you've reminded me of something that I've been talking about for a while, and I want your take on it because you're directly connected to this thing. So, you know, we've we've seen the trends of you know, Giallo is super popular, and then I have seen 
spaghetti westerns finally really start to catch on and get a, a serious look. And there's so many of them that haven't been restored yet. But um, and now, surprisingly, like the peplum, like the sword and the sandal uh, Italian genre. But there's still dozens, if not hundreds of these like sexy spy movies or these sex comedies or, you know, Fulci worked on some of this stuff. I mean, the people that worked on these movies is really impressive, but it's like they never left Europe. And I don't know that they ever got translated outside of, of Italy. Um, do you see any hope for some of these movies to get, you know, what you're talking about, you've, you're, you're helping with it. But do you see a trend where some of these are found and reassessed or at least restored i mean it's a tough question because you know someone else might have a different interpretation but uh, my gut feeling is that if you if you put enough into it um eventually people will people will respond to it i mean <laughs> i'm hoping that because <laughs> i'm going to be I'm going to be doing a bit of that in terms of focusing on genres that aren't necessarily popular. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like you said, there's a reason that the Jello is super popular. That's because you had loads of labels really pushing it. Mm -hmm. And, and now we've basically had all of the classics, um, you know, audiences are, are getting to the point where they've, you know, either ticked all their boxes or they're getting to the point where they're sort of like, you know, let's have something new now. Yeah. So, that that gives me hope but sometimes it can be difficult for people to get into something because when you first see a very specific genre like those can sometimes be a bit disarming you're kind of like what the hell is this and i'm not <laughs> sure i really get it and yeah. you know it can take time to um to adjust or to necessarily dig out the best examples of that genre mm -hmm. um it's not always possible to sort of say right okay well we're going to launch this new series of films and we want to get this one and ah this one is by the one studio that won't do any deals so sometimes you have to start in a different place I and mean, we had that a bit at arrow like you know we did some iranian films that you know i think were very good um but a lot of people were like no oh, you know maybe they should have started with this and it's like well that one wasn't available so um but you know, eventually, I think if the films are good enough, people go for them uh, over time. The problem is, is that over time doesn't always work for the label. So, you know, we'll see. And I think for some of this stuff, I wonder if it's just in someone's basement, you know, some of these European movies or whatever they are. They may be like, where are the prints? Are they with a studio? Or are they with a, some of this stuff's really scattered from, from what I understand. And it's just gone. It's just gone. Nobody knows where it is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that sometimes can be a real nightmare. Um, you know, there are various films that, you know, I've got on my list that I would love to do, but it's a situation where maybe the rights are a bit spread and you're not really sure who owns it for this territory. Like, it might be available for Australia for some bizarre reason, but not available for the rest of the world or... Um, you know exactly where the material is and who the licensor is but they're absolutely crazy and they won't license it because they want a million dollars or whatever so there are films that are just buried and I had a conversation with a studio or have been on and off having a conversation for some really great classic films and they're all blocked with music clearances and 
maybe some of them have popped up on streaming because that's a different right and that's okay and people will be like but it's i saw it on streaming of course it can come out and it's like well no sometimes it's a different set of rights and and, and the studio would love to get it out but the costs are just too much because no one's going to come in and, and it's too small money for them to license for the whole world because i think that's that's the only way they'll do it from what i can gather and you know no no label can do that no label can sort of buy world rights on a really relatively speaking obscure film to to sell you know mm -hmm. amazon in a few countries at best maybe you know you never make your money back well sorry, so, it's a shame you're gonna i'm sorry go ahead no it's, it's a shame that you know some of these films get locked in that situation that you know we'd all love to see but yeah right well you're based in the uk are you planning on with radiance are we what territories will you be planning on releasing the films in so i'll be releasing in the uk the us and canada um so listings are up for the first few releases on amazon.com um and should be amazon.ca as well and amazon.co.uk and and then you know all the retailers you expect like diabolic dvd and brindhouse i think is up or coming um and you know so on this is it's i'm i'm really excited you know what you're doing you've got the experience to back it up you've got the connections to back it up and i think that we are in store for great things so is there anything you want to cover that we didn't hit on um no not really i mean all I'll say is, is that um, I think I, I'm, I'm doing things slightly differently. So I hope kind of people take the time to kind of look into that and um, I guess kind of see it from, you know, the point we were discussing earlier, which is that, you know, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to push the boundaries as much as possible as a small company um so i'm doing things slightly differently you know i did the um the three-year package uh for for 50 people uh, in the us and 50 in the uk and and that is is allowing me to basically use that pre-order money to then go out and beef up the schedule so i'm gonna basically i'm gonna keep doing that so i'm gonna um beef up the schedule again um, and then sell more packages. So they're going to be slightly different. They won't be the same ones again. And um, and then the people who buy into those, they'll hopefully, if it works out, they'll get the beefed up version of the thing that follows and the packages that follow that will potentially then get beefed up again. So it's a kind of pay it forward type scheme, essentially. Scheme is the wrong word. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. And, and, and hopefully that will allow me to, you know, plumb the depths of those, those areas of cinema, which like you mentioned, like sexy comedies or whatever, you know, could be something hey. for the future, potentially. This is what you, when you have to rub your hands together when you say scheme, you have to go scheme. Yeah, yeah. And sort of cock an eyebrow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did think of something else that I need to ask you, because if we don't talk about it here, it's going to come up. Why no 4K? you're going to get this question a million times let's address it yeah yeah um it's not um it's not because of anything to do with the format or anything like that 
It's just that these films are not restored in 4K. Um, they're never going to be restored in 4K, like 4K HDR properly. I think there are releases on the market that that are on the format that probably shouldn't be or, you know, aren't done properly. I mean, from where I came from at Arrow, you know, and, and the reason Arrow was so successful is because it had such a good team there under James White, you know, ensuring that everything was absolutely as good as it could be and done properly. So, you know, I, that's kind of how I learned how to do things. Um, so I would do it in the same way. Any, any 4K release I would do, I would make sure it's a very good restoration. I would make sure that it's done in HDR. You know, I think doing a 4K release in SDR is probably not the right thing to do. So I wouldn't be looking at that. Um, and the thing is, is with 4K is that just a lot of these films, it's just not realistic. Uh, from an economical point of view, from a materials point of view, for that to happen. But should the right film and the right restoration come along, I'll absolutely look at a 4K. There is one or two titles on my list um, that I am looking at that could potentially be 4K releases in the future. Um, so, you know, if that, if that happens, then I'll absolutely be looking at it. Excellent. That sounds good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I want to encourage everybody that's watching this or listening to it, however you're checking this out, to support Radiance Films. You can go to the website, you can pre-order these titles, and we just heard how this is, you're not buying a boat with the pre-order money, you know, this is going directly into future projects. Uh, and that's how it works, you know, this stuff lives and dies, it grows on the support of the customers themselves. So uh, we're going to be there for it. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. Is, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Heath. Appreciate it. All right, there you have it. It's a really interesting time, right? Because we are talking about a, a brand new label that I can already tell is going to do absolutely great things. The connections are there. The passion is there. The experience is there. Fran knows what he's doing. He is a pro and he's picking movies that he loves. Uh, he's doing them the right way. I love what he said about the special features and the honesty about commentaries where he said, Essentially that, you know, commentaries are important, but he doesn't have time to listen to a lot of commentaries. And I say this as someone who has just, uh, it's official now, I can say, I have I have recorded an audio commentary. There's an upcoming uh, Mill Creek box set of thrillers from the vault from it's Columbia Pictures. It's eight Columbia Pictures. There's also a companion sci-fi from the vault uh, coming from Mill Creek Entertainment. But I, along with C. Courtney Joyner, recorded a commentary for The Man They Could Not Hang. So that is my, that's the Serial at Midnight audio commentary debut. But of course, if you've been following this channel for a long time, you know that there are audio commentaries right here on the channel. I did an audio commentary with Eric Wilkinson from MVD Entertainment for Die Hard, which was his favorite movie. Uh, it is his favorite movie. Uh, I've done them. They Live. That's a good Halloween one if you're still listening to this before the Halloween season. Uh, and if you saw my conversation with Jeff from Films at Home or heard my conversation with Jeff from Films at Home for episode two, uh, my They Live commentary. I'm tremendously proud of that with uh, Joshua Jabkuga, the writer of uh, Bubba, Hoka, Bubba Hotep and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers and... Uh, working now for AEW, which is an amazing, uh, it's just, I'm, I'm so lucky to know that guy. He's taught me a lot about how to interview people. He's paid his dues for a long time. And the uh, the knowledge that he's shared with me and kind of taught with me, uh, kind of mentored me in some of the, uh, I'm going to tell you guys, interviews did not come naturally to me. I needed a little help trying to figure out where to start with some of this stuff. And he was a great resource. So 
Um, if you haven't, if you're a comic fan, you guys got to check out Bubba Hotep and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers. Of course, it's the Don Coscarelli. Um, that, that movie is what we're talking about, based on a Joe Lansdale, Joe R. Lansdale uh, story. And then Bubba Hotep and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers is another Joe Lansdale story that's been adapted for comics. And uh, it's really great. I, I love that story. But uh, my point through all of that is that commentaries are not necessarily... Uh, yeah, they they take a lot of time to listen to. They take just as much time to listen to a commentary as it takes to watch the movie. So with so much coming out, I appreciate what he had to say about trying to focus on other areas of special features. So we will be, what does the Emperor say at the end? Or, or Palpatine, uh, Senator Palpatine, is it at the end of, of the Phantom Menace? I shall be watching your career with great interest. Or whatever he says. That's not a direct quote. It's something like that. Oh, I believe this power station will be fully operational by the time your friends arrive. And we're having fun, quoting Star Wars. All right. So, guys, uh, I think we're going to send this one out to pasture for this episode. Thank you so much. As always, continue to rate, review, and subscribe. Those are the biggest ways that you can support Serial at Midnight. If you want to go above and beyond and take things to the next level, the ultimate level of support for Serial at Midnight, we do have a Patreon. There are uh, lots of Patreon supporters, and I, I hope that I'm serving them well. We have got uh, tons and tons of Patreon exclusives, over 130 exclusive videos that include collection tours. There's some audio commentaries that are still only for Patreon. Uh, and uh, I do the Collecting at Midnight series on Patreon. I'm about to do another one uh, this month. I think it's episode 29. It's basically just me talking about my own collecting habits, struggling with limits of space, struggling with trying to get things out uh, when so much is coming in, you know, on a near daily basis. Um, and, and then just what I'm buying, what did I buy? You know, I review a lot of stuff, uh, a lot, a lot of titles and releases at Serial at Midnight, but what am I buying that I'm maybe not talking about in the main channel videos? That's it all, all goes to Patreon, Sh uh, sale shop, shopping sales and things like that. So, uh, that's all at patreon.com slash Serial at Midnight, but anything you can do, to support this channel is greatly, it's mucho appreciated. So if that's just a thumbs up, if that's just leaving a comment saying, hey, I really enjoyed this, um, it's all appreciated. I just, I'm glad that you're here. And Serial at Midnight continues to grow and go to some really exciting places. What does the future hold? Wonderful things. Thanks for being with us for it. Guys, until next time, I am Heath Holland. This is Serial at Midnight, and I will catch you next